Next month will mark the 30th anniversary of the signing of the Oslo Accords, in which Israeli and Palestinian leaders agreed to establish the Palestinian Authority, what was supposed to be a temporary body responsible for limited Palestinian self-governance over parts of the West Bank and Gaza Strip, a body that would serve as the foundation of a future Palestinian state. Three decades later, we're about as far away from that vision as ever. While the PA still exists, and one of its leaders who signed the Oslo Accords in Mahmoud Abbas remains at the helm, the mechanism he operates largely fails to deliver for its people. But should the Palestinians' problems be Israel's as well? It ultimately is in Israel's interest to have a transparent and an effective Palestinian authority, because when you have that, um, it will bring greater stability to the West Bank, uh, to the region more broadly. That's journalist Adam Razgan, who has almost a decade of experience covering Palestinian affairs for the Times of Israel, J-Post, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. Now a member of the New Yorker's editorial staff, he recently co-wrote a tour de force profile of one of Mahmoud Abbas's closest aides, Hussein al-Sheikh. The story is about Sheikh, but it's also a larger one about a PA that was born out of support from the masses, but that, like Sheikh, has gradually distanced from the people and their struggles. We discussed what can be learned from Sheikh's career, what his and the PA's futures look like, as well as Israel's role in it all. This week, I, Jacob Magid, ask journalist Adam Razgan, what matters now? Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. Adam, thank you so much for coming on for what is somewhat of a homecoming for you with the Times of Israel. Thank you, Jacob. It's great to be with you. So you and fellow former TOI Palestinian Affairs correspondent Aaron Boxerman recently published this incredibly eye-opening profile in Foreign Policy magazine of senior Palestinian Authority Minister Hussein al-Sheikh, for which you interviewed 75 Palestinian and Israeli and international officials over a span of nine months. Listeners, I highly recommend you read this piece. We'll have it linked to the write-up of this podcast episode. Adam, you have years of experience covering Palestinian affairs, which makes you a perfect person to ask, what matters now in this arena? The future of the Palestinian Authority. That is why my colleague and I chose to profile Hussein al-Sheikh, who is a contender in the race to succeed Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority, but also an extremely influential figure within the Palestinian political system. 
Got it. So you talk about the future, but what about the present? Where are we in this current moment of Palestinian politics? So the Palestinian Authority arguably is at its lowest point ever. It's facing a legitimacy crisis. The PA was established 30 years ago. Its reason for being was to bring the Palestinians closer to freedom, independence, statehood. But in many ways, it's long outlived its reason for being. Uh, The officials of the Palestinian Authority, the the sort of senior leadership are standing in trying to keep the crumbling tower of the PA from falling. But they're holding it up while Israel's occupation is being reinforced and democratic freedoms within the Palestinian sphere are being eroded. And why in this current moment of erosion did you feel that it was important to focus on Hussein al-Sheikh? Many people thought we were interested in suggesting that Sheikh is the next leader of the Palestinian Authority, that he'll take over for Mahmoud Abbas. But in fact, we weren't particularly interested in that at all. What we were trying to say is that Sheikh's life is a representation of the last 30 years of Palestinian history. It sort of traces the ever-widening gap between the public and the Palestinian leadership. And Sheikh is someone who started out as a leather jacket um, wearing street activist and who now is at the top of Palestinian officialdom, you know, going around the world, meeting with uh, ministers and dignitaries uh, in foreign capitals and driving a Mercedes Benz around Ramallah becoming one of the most influential figures in Palestinian decision-making. And we thought that his story, in many ways, could tell the broader story of the Palestinian national movement over the last three decades. And what has that distance that you've talked about looked like? How has that manifested itself? Sheikh is someone who started out, he grew up in Ramallah. His father was a wholesale uh, food trader. He's someone who spent 11 years in prison. He was in, you know, in his telling, he was involved in a Fatah cell um, that, you know, carried out violence against Israel. But uh, he he said that he, in particular, wasn't directly involved in acts of violence. Um, he learned Hebrew in prison. And then when the Palestinian Authority was established in the early 90s, he joined the security forces. Uh, he was trying to find his position in the new order. Um, His breakthrough moment, uh, in many ways, was when he uh, became the Minister of Civil Affairs. The Civil Affairs Ministry is, you know, sounds like a technocratic name for a ministry, but it's a ministry that deals with Israel directly. It handles all the issues with Israel related to permits, to construction in parts of the West Bank that are under Israel's control and so on and so forth. But Sheikh himself also deals with Israel on just about any issue, whether it's tensions in Jenin, clashes in Nablus, or, um, you know, a 3G or a 4G deal that they're trying to work out. Um, He's the main point of contact. And what has his rise looked like? How has he gotten to be so close to Abu Mazen, I think you call him, or according to one U.S. official in the piece, the Abbas Whisperer? So how did he get to that point? So Sheikh is someone who's in control of relations with Israel, and Abu Mazen's always kept the officials within the Palestinian political system or close to Israel, close to himself. Sheikh is someone who, in many ways, is a yes man. He's, you know, Abu Mazen over the years has become increasingly intolerant of criticism. Uh, He doesn't welcome advisors into his circle who are challenging his views. And one Palestinian official we spoke to, Nasser al-Qudwa, he's the former ambassador, uh, Palestinian ambassador to the UN, and he also served as foreign minister. 
and it was a member of the Fatah leadership until recently when he was ousted by a boss. He said that, you know, Sheikh has a particular ability to, uh, in his words, using expletives, you know, kiss uh, a boss's rear end, to brown nose, to lie, to tell the president, you're great, you're amazing. It's this yes man mentality that I think brought him closer to a boss and, and sort of his willingness to be obsequious to the president, uh, but also his ability to cultivate strong relations with Israel and to show the president that he's capable of working with Israel on different issues and, and, and maintaining those relationships, especially at, you know, tense times and, and key moments um, over the past many years. And I just recall in the piece how it wasn't just Abbas that liked him, but the Israelis really liked him and even vouched for him when he came under all sorts of allegations of corruption, sexual harassment. Israel was really had his back through all that. Why was that? When you talk to Israeli security officials, many of them are very positive about Sheikh. In the view of Israel, he's seen as someone who's a pragmatist. He's practical. You can work with him and make deals with him quickly uh, and you know, this is in con- contrast to other Palestinian officials like Mohammed Ishtaye, the Palestinian prime minister. They, you know, Israeli officials, but also foreign diplomats say you go into a room with Ishtaye and you sit with him for 40 minutes and you get a lecture on history and international law. And then you only have five minutes to actually discuss practical things. With Sheikh, you go in the room and in 15 minutes, you've already uh, achieved three deals, one to open a road in uh, Janine a second to deal with an electrical substation, and a third to uh, sort of solve, sort out some of the issues related to the cellular networks in the West Bank. Um, so he's seen by Israeli officials as someone practical that they can work with, who's not going to press them too hard on the higher political issues. Of course, he's going to state that you know he wants a two-state solution, that he wants to uh, achieve Palestinian independence, but he's more focused on those more incremental issues in Israelis they have a preference for working with him. Okay, so he's clearly a pragmatist. And But what about some of the allegations of corruption that he faced? When we're talking about Hussein al-Sheikh, the allegations that are most prominent relate to the businessman card. So his ministry, as I mentioned, is in charge of uh, permits. Um, and these are permits related to access to Israel, whether you're a worker uh, and just want to go work in a construction proje- project somewhere in Israel, but also permits for business people who want to be able to drive their car into Israel to hold meetings with business people in Tel Aviv, or who want to use the airport uh, just outside of Tel Aviv, Ben Gurion Airport, or people that you know want permits in order to import certain products and materials and so on and so forth. So Sheikh is, is in charge of handing out these businessman permits. And the allegations that we had heard throughout the course of our reporting is that officials in his ministry um, had been accepting favors and cash in exchange for these permits. One official we spoke to, or one businessman, his name is Samir Hasboon. He's the president of the Chamber of Commerce in Bethlehem. He said that, you know, he described the situation as you go into office of the civil affairs ministry and they'll tell you fix up our offices install an air conditioning unit and you'll get your permit uh he also noted that there were cases of people paying ten thousand dollars in exchange for permits those were the main allegations we were we were hearing throughout the course of our reporting Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. 
And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. You know, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll privileged to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. There's clearly this deterioration of the PA and, a, and a, a rise in allegations of corruption over the years. Where does Israel fit into this equation? Yeah, so when we spoke to Palestinians, in many ways, they would argue that the Israel was enabling this corruption. They would say the permits that Sheikh's ministry is handing out unfairly and not based on a system of merit. And Israel knows full well that Sheikh's ministry wasn't um, distributing them in a fair way. Uh, but when you speak to Israeli officials, they had, you know, they, 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 they'll acknowledge that Palestinians are right, that, you know, that, that they had received piles and piles of complaints from human rights workers, from Palestinian businessmen, saying that, you know, these permits aren't being handed out um, fairly. But when we spoke to one official in particular, his name was Kobe Levy. He uh, was an advisor to COGAT, which is the Israeli liaison between the Palestinian Authority and Israel. He said, Palestinians are right when they say that these permits aren't being handed out fairly and that we know about it. But it's an internal Palestinian issue. And if it's not something related to terrorism or security concern, you know, who really cares? I mean, that's essentially what he told us. What do you make of that argument? Some of the people that we spoke to said it ultimately is in Israel's interest to have a transparent and an effective Palestinian authority, because when you have that, it will bring greater stability to the West Bank, to the region more broadly. How did the PA respond to some of the criticism that it's been getting? Yeah, so we, we sort of went to several officials uh, during our time, and we asked them and put these allegations to them, you know, what do you make of it? And honestly, there was a lot of dismissiveness. You know, one official we spoke to, Sabri Saidam, who's uh, uh, a senior member of Fatah and a former education minister, noted that we're not angels. And he sort of said that discussing the failings of the PA is a distraction from the real problem, which is Israel's occupation. Uh, we actually went and met with Wassel Abu Yusuf, who's a PLO executive committee member, and we put these uh, complaints to him. And he really was left sort of dumbfounded and didn't know what to say. And sort of after sort of asking him several times over and over and pressing him on the issue, he kind of just giggled. And I think he didn't do that to make light of the situation, but rather to sort of express that he had nothing else to say. He wasn't sure, you know, what tack uh, the Palestinian Authority could take or how it could change its approach, that it's sort of just stuck in this mud in which it's sort of incapable of changing course, even on these issues around sort of effective government and good governance. Is the PA a lost cause? Well, 
The Palestinian Authority has increasingly been facing a legitimacy crisis at home. Uh, something like 90% of the people you'll, you'll hear in opinion polls perceive the, the authority to be corrupt. Uh, it's still providing jobs for hundreds of thousands of uh, Palestinians. It's still serving a purpose. And, you know, some Palestinians hope it, you know, will bring them closer to statehood. But that number is becoming smaller and smaller. And especially if you look at the recent surveys, you'll see that few Palestinians actually think the authority is going to be able to achieve uh, statehood in the near future, not only because, you know, Israel's occupation has become becoming further entrenched, but also because the Palestinian Authority has sort of shown that it's incapable of providing good governance at home. One interesting comment that we heard from uh, a, a European diplomat, one of the more strong criticisms that we had heard, and said that it's essentially become a conglomerate that's serving this elite class. Um, of Palestinians who have permits to move in and out of Israel, who travel abroad through Ben Gurion Airport, who have businesses that are successful while the rest of the people are suffering. And he's, he made this interesting point where he said that Hussein al-Sheikh and individuals like Hussein al-Sheikh and Majid Farage, the intelligence chief, they're meant to sort of hold the system together while the politicians and, you know, the Mahmoud Abbas's, the Saab Arakats, the Nabil Shahs, are supposed to be negotiating a deal. But because that hasn't worked out, um, you're left with these individuals who are holding the tower standing. And the, the challenge in many ways is that you're left with them in power. And when you need, you know, the, the leaders of the Palestinian Authority to go talk to the people to explain to them why they need to oppose violence, why negotiations is the right path, their voices aren't heard by the public. Instead, uh, you know, the most resonant voices become uh, militants. Those people uh, in some ways have achieved popularity that the Palestinian officials could only dream of. I wonder though if this this collapse of the PA was something of an inevitability given that it was me only meant to function as this temporary body as a placeholder for an eventual Palestinian state which has never come. So in that absence, was there any ever any chance for the PA to succeed? Yeah, so I think if you talk to Palestinians, they're very understanding that the PA is weak and feeble in the face of Israel and its occupation and its military rule. Um, however, I think they do expect that their own leaders, especially the ones who are going to New York City at the UN, to Washington, D.C., to Brussels and other places around the world and talking about how the Palestinian cause is a just cause. It's one of human rights, um, how they're doing that. But at home, they're allowing corruption to be become pervasive, auto autocratic rule to have its way. Um, I think for them, they expect the Palestinian leaders who are speaking about their cause as a just cause to do their best within their own sphere of influence. That's where Palestinians sort of see the hypocrisy and their government not delivering what they've hoped for. Do they view the PA as poorly as they view Israel at this point? It's an interesting question. One person that we spoke to is Muhannad Karaja. He's a human rights lawyer uh, based in Ramallah. It, uh, he runs a firm called Lawyers for Justice. The PA actually recently moved to shut down or to freeze the, the license of his firm. It's, it's actually frozen. And Karaja is someone who's represented many dis dissidents, Palestinian dissidents throughout the years. And he sort of put this in, I thought, uh, a noteworthy way. He said, that the Israeli occupation in many ways is the biggest burden that Palestinians face. But increasingly, 
Palestinians because of the, you know, poor governance, the anti-democratic rules, the sort of concentration of power within the executive, you know, not having elections since 2006. They're increasingly seeing the Palestinian authority and the Palestinian government as a parallel burden. That's how he put it. It might be a bit of an exaggeration, but I think, you know, that's something that we heard throughout the course of our reporting and was echoed time and time again. And is the solution to a lot of these problems elections? Well, I think for Palestinians, elections would solve part of the problem. Uh, Israel's military rule would still be there, uh, would likely still be there. Settler violence would likely still be there. But um, elections, if it were genuinely going to lead to a representative parliament functioning again, the parliament hasn't functioned for, for over a decade. If it would lead to that, I think it would open the space for more uh, you know, representation. It would allow the parliament potentially to undertake a oversight role. And um, it might restore some of the balance of power that, uh, that, that, that we haven't seen in many, many years. And how likely are those elections to take place? At the current moment, while Mahmoud Abbas is in power, I personally find them uh, unlikely uh, to take place anytime soon. I don't see them being on the horizon. Abbas came close. You know, he signed a presidential decree setting a date for elections a couple of years ago, both legislative elections and presidential elections, but he ultimately canceled them, citing Israel's unwillingness to let the elections take place in Jerusalem. Uh, But I I do believe, um, uh, you know, after Abbas goes, whether that's biologically or, you know, of his own will stepping down, uh, there might be an opening for them to take place, but it's hard to know what will take place in the future. Okay, so I, I won't ask you to, to put, put out your crystal ball and, and specifically predict who will be the successor to Abbas, but how would you expect that process to look like and what are some of the names that we could maybe see? It's hard to predict exactly what will happen, but there are various figures who see themselves as p- potential successors to Abbas. There's Marwan Barghouti, uh, there's Hussein al-Sheikh, there's um, Jabril Rajoub, uh, Mahmoud al-Alul, these are many Fatah figures who sort of see themselves as being a part of the succession discussion. There are figures in Hamas as well, uh, as well as others. Um, it's hard to know exactly what will happen, as I said, but you know, one, salute, one scenario is that the Fatah leadership will come together, they'll agree on a way forward, they'll anoint a specific figure. Um, it's hard to imagine that happening because there are so many camps currently and they're always fighting and sort of clashing with each other, often behind the scenes. Um, Abbas has, you know, very carefully avoided pointing someone to succeed him. Uh, I think he wants the attention focused on him. And he knows the moment he appoints someone else, everyone's focus will turn to that individual. Um, there also is a possibility, and people have talked about this in the press, uh, of, you know, the different camps within Fatah splintering and, um, and, and sort of the different figures who have, you know, groups of supporters with access to weapons clashing with each other over taking over Abbas's throne. So um, there are many different scenarios. It's hard to know exactly what happened. I often tell people, uh, if anyone tells you exactly what's going to happen, they don't actually know what's going to happen. So we'll end on this, Adam. What would you say was uh, the main conclusion of all this reporting that you did with Aaron? It was a tremendous experience to go this deep into a story and to really spend 
the better part of almost an entire year uh, in looking into an individual and trying to sort of learn everything and anything that we could. Um, I think the story of one of the people we quote at the end of the piece, Mahzuz Shalada, really sums it up. So Mahzuz is a teacher in the Hebron area. He's from Sair, a village which is just north of, uh, of, the, of the city of Hebron. And he told us about his students, and he said that his students are increasingly becoming disillusioned and that they have lesser and lesser hopes for the future. And the way he sort of tried to sum it all up for us was to say that he feels like the Palestinians are living between the hammer of the Israeli occupation and everything that that entails alongside the anvil of the Palestinian Authority. Well, that's quite the metaphor to close with. Adam, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Jacob. It's really a pleasure to be back with TOI, and thanks so much. During a recently Likud faction meeting, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was quoted as having told fellow party lawmakers that on the one hand, Israel needs the Palestinian Authority. It needs the PA to provide services to millions of Palestinians in the West Bank so that Israel doesn't have to, Netanyahu explained. But he then clarified in that faction meeting that just as much as Israel needs the PA to survive, on the other hand, it needs to, quote, crush Palestinian ambitions for statehood. The question Israelis should be asking themselves, though, is whether they can have both those things at the same time. What Matters Now is produced and edited by the Podwaves. Have a comment about this or other episodes of What Matters Now? Email us at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Look for more What Matters Now episodes and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Until next week, shalom. Shalom.